Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Good to have you on the show, Tony. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Hadi. Nice to meet you and thanks for having me. Amazing. You have an interesting story and also you're part of this growing cast of startups that are bringing new AI initiatives to the world. But I want to introduce you very quickly to our listeners. Tony Beltramelli is the CEO and co-founder of Wizard, which is spelled U-I-Z-A-R-D. It's an easy to use drag and drop editor that uses AI features to help designers or non-designers design, prototype, interfaces for mobile and web applications. And uh, I think you have a very powerful AI capabilities, which I was researching like a heat map prediction, text generation, UI theme creation, and more importantly, you can put a text prompt and even convert a hand-drawn sketch into a wireframe and then transform screenshots into editable designs. So it's quite amazing how much we've advanced with the design tools. Tony, before we know your story, tell us, how did you come up with this idea? That's a great question. Well, first of all, we've been building this for a very long time. Um, It's uh, long before generative AI was even a thing. (laughs) Some of our customers are calling us the uh, OG of uh, Gen AI for design. But the core, the reason why we built this is that you know, my co-founder and I used to work within, you know, product companies, agencies, and we've always been mind blown by the fact that in the 2000, 2010, we were still building apps and websites the same way since the 90s. Someone would manually push pixels around and someone would manually go and turn these pixels into code. And so our assumption is that there got to be a better way to kind of help people convey their thoughts into a design that ultimately become like a production-ready application. And we've always had the assumption that to make design easy, AI had to be in one shape or form part of the solution to really like lower the barrier of entry and automate part of the process. Amazing. Thank you for sharing this. If you go back to your early days, were there any signs that you exhibited in terms of being an entrepreneur in, in the future? Oh man, that's a good question. I've never felt attracted to business, to be honest. I've always been like a nerd trying to solve technical problems with programming and computer science. And I found a love for entrepreneurship by the fact that it can actually help amplify the amount of problems you can solve and the amount of people that you can actually find solutions for. So it's kind of like a random, you know, love that I found through entrepreneurship, through computer science and through programming and through my nerdiness for building solutions. (laughs) Yeah, this is amazing. You're a technical co-founder, so you you have the software uh, engineering background. How had you seen that transition from being purely technical into when you become a CEO, you have to be multiverse in terms of knowing operations, uh, finance, marketing, even fundraising. What sort of learnings have you accumulated along the way? It's funny because when you go through the startup kind of journey, you don't realize how much you learn you know, until you really are forced to reflect on it. So I'm probably going to provide some very shallow answer unless we are over a beer and then start discussing everything. And then this is where we can actually unpack. Oh my God, we learned so much. But in a nutshell, I would say, 
you know, my co-founder and I, three of us are really technical and we like to see business as problem solving. In the same way you would solve a programming problem, you will kind of like try to segment a big problem into smaller pieces that you can solve independently to eventually get to a bigger solution. And by having this systematic approach that's like kind of core to our engineering culture, we kind of apply it to everything else. And so far it's been working, you know, finance, fundraising, people and culture. So ultimately really just applying the engineering handbook to everything else that we do. Amazing. If we go back to your starting point, how did you validate the idea that the world need a wizard? How did you come up with that conclusion? When we started, so before the company fully became some registration number on an official uh, US Delaware office, we were playing with the thought of developing AI for design and development in our spare time. We were working full time, spending our weekends and late evenings trying to code and hack something away. And at the moment we started having a solution that kind of worked, we literally just simply recorded like a demo video put it online, and then we start seeing people sharing it, talking about it. And ultimately, this amount of kind of organic interest gave us the incentive that, oh, maybe there's something more to it. Maybe this is more than just like a quick, nice engineering challenge. Maybe there's value into building a solution around it so we can actually help people use it on their, on their day-to-day. So that's ultimately how we got the value, at least a sign from the market that there was value in the early days. How did you decide later that the starting point should be more directed to an individual, let's say, designer or non-designer versus going to an enterprise where practically the money is the biggest there? So because we're building a very technical solutions where we had to really like invent how would an AI for design work, like all the pieces had to be built from the ground up. There was no open AI out there at the moment. And even today, I would say open AI is great for language. It's not so great for design. Because we had to build this technology and we knew it was going to take a long time before it was really going to create value, we knew we, w- we wouldn't be able to just sell a non-working solution to an enterprise. <laughs> so the assumption was like, all right, let's just launch this as a freemium, get people to use it, and then we'll learn how to improve it over time by observing how people use it and then listening to what works and what doesn't work. That was the naive assumption. And honestly, it worked out in the long run. Yeah, amazing. I mean, impressively, uh, you have now uh, officially, I think, uh, more than 1 million user who has created some project on Wizard. And then around 50,000 new projects are created every single week. This is impressive. But if we go back to your early days, before you raised, I believe, 18.6 million, what were your early acquisition strategies or tactics or, let's say, non-scalable ways of landing the first few customers and then scaling up? And then when when was that hockey stick effect to scale up? That's a good question. So when it comes to the first acquisition, we did a ton of stuff that don't scale. Like, And we still do stuff that don't scale today. But on the acquisition side, because we're a team engineer, the simplest way we thought of acquiring users was literally just to have a form on, you know, a login form for people to sign up. And as by definition, you know, it was scalable. (laughs) But because we had this kind of demo videos, early machine learning research paper and proof of concept that was getting traction, it was easy then for us to launch a landing page with literally just a sign-up form. And then we had people logging in, like giving us the email to get, you know, be amongst the first to get access to this technology once it would be ready for prime time. 
That's literally how we acquire our first 10,000 customers. Just a simple, dumb login form on the landing page with all the demo videos that we were working on. In terms of, you know, attracting those organically, what were some brand building activities that you've made other than the demo video which went viral? Is there any specific things that you accumulated over that period of time? So when we started this kind of like demo phase, we were end 2017 and we started the company early 2018. But quite frankly, we didn't do any marketing, branding or anything in that sort until probably mid-2020. So the first 50,000 to 100,000 users were honestly completely acquired through this organic, like word of mouth type of channel for which we didn't have really control. It was the beauty of having people being excited about the technology and then telling their friends, colleagues to go and sign up for it as well. How important are the early days where you're getting signups, but you also need feedback yeah. from the, those clients? Did you do any activities to make sure like, the V1, which maybe you're embarrassed, as Reid Hoffman said, is about it. How did you improve that? You know, we are continuously embarrassed by our technology. If you look at what we have today, I'm really proud of it. If I look at it six months ago, I will still be embarrassed. And if you ask me the same question six months from now, I'm probably be, will be embarrassed by what we have today. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, we're not doing enough progress. But ultimately, the core fundamental driver for our early signup was literally just people being excited about like, hey, AI is coming to my work, it's coming to my field. I'll be able to just do more with less. And then once people started to sign up very early on, we opened like an alpha where we'll onboard people batch by batch, give them access to the alpha, they'll test it, we'll ask for feedback and eventually learn how to improve the product based on, on their feedback. And ultimately, this is kind of like how we not just improve the product, but also improve our understanding of who is the market for this product and you know, ultimately find product market fit. Because when we started, we thought we were building the product for a very different type of customers that we ultimately you know, started to serve three years later. I love what you've done with your SEO team. You have someone who's building mock-ups and having them on different sites. Tell us how impactful is this strategy and how much of value has it brought you in terms of acquisition? SEO is great. And uh, the challenge with SEO that most founders kind of underestimate is that it really takes time. We started to write content on a website probably at the same time when we started to do marketing, which is like mid 2020. And we were for a long time started to talk about, hey, we believe the future of design is AI powered. We wrote content on, on about AI, we wrote content on, on how we believe machine learning will just change the way people design and develop software. But for a very long time, we didn't see the impact of this, right? People will, of course, browse through this content, sometimes search through it. We'll start ranking on Google slowly. But what happened is that when OpenAI came out with ChatGPT, they basically told the entire world, hey, AI is a real thing. And so at this moment, people started to look for AI design solution. And because we already had the entire SEO strategy laid down, we would, could capture this demand almost instantly. And so this kind of like long-term bet on SEO paid off huge times when OpenAI educated the market much faster than we could alone. And so, yeah, uh, in retrospect, SEO was definitely a, a good call to kind of invest on way before kind of this AI awakening of people happened. So I have a designer that works on Adobe and Figma. What's your pitch to them to switch? Well, to if they are a designer and they're happy with Adobe or Figma, I'll tell them, good for you, stick there. Like the customers we're serving are the people that don't have the time 
or the skills to kind of master Figma or Adobe. So typically our customers will be product managers, startup entrepreneurs, VP team leads, engineering teams, marketing teams that are, you know, they constantly need to iterate on their product, on new landing page for their website, but they just can't be bothered to open like a really complex design tools with 1000 options. So this is the people we serve. So I won't try to convince your designer to join, but I will try to convince the PM to join. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. Looking back at what you've built so far, is there anything you would have done differently early on to get more paying customers? So I believe you have you have a huge organic reach, but most of them could be free and then part of them would switch to freemium. Is there any specific strategies that you would have changed knowing what you know today? 100%. We waited way too long to start charging people or at least experimenting with pricing. And what happened is that when you have a product-led growth kind of startup business like ours, and you initially give it for free because you just want data quantity, then you will basically not have the same quality as people actually paying you a few dollars each month. And ultimately, that means that in the early days, although we were getting a lot, collecting a lot of data and feedback on early users, the quality of this feedback were in retrospect, not as good as it could have been if we were, for example, asking a small team to just pay us, you know, 20 bucks a month or even less than that, just for the at least symbolic commitment of the product being a real, you know, work tool and not just like something fun to play on the, in the weekends. So that would probably be my top one. Charge people earlier than you feel comfortable with. Amazing. On the pricing aspect, how would you determine what's the price point that you would start with and then what's your experiments going forward to be able to match that supply with the demand have you had that challenge at this stage or in the past pricing is probably one of the hardest thing we have to constantly kind of <laughs> scratch our head around it's so hard and what baffles my mind as you know an engineer is how much pricing is more like an art than a science there's so much psychology at play human emotions so the way we went around it is by applying, again, we are nerds. We thought we could solve this with data. <laughs> so in the early days, we ran this vendor store method, if I pronounce it correctly, which basically let you survey your customers and ask them a different set of questions on what would be too expensive, what would be too cheap, what they would feel comfortable paying. And based on these different results, you, you run some statistical model on the data and you kind of start having buckets of where you might want to start pricing first. And what was funny is that we run this, spend quite a few months collecting data and then run the analysis. And at the end of the day, the price point our customers were telling us they would be comfortable paying us for was the same price of all the competitors in our space. So if you listen to pricing experts, they'll tell you, never price according to your competitors, ask your users, and then we do ask our users and they literally give us the same price as our competitors. So it was interesting to get validation at least, but yeah, that's ultimately how we ended up pricing the first packages. It's, it's good to know then that now there's a rule of thumb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you want to start at least, so that's great. What has been the most painful mistake you've done and what have you learned so far? I would say most painful mistake is probably on the people and culture. I would say one of the biggest mistakes we've done as entrepreneur is sometimes not to let someone go quicker when there is a clear culture misfit. That's something you learn the hard way. Even if an employee is performing really well, if they are toxic to other people in the team, you should let them go as quickly as possible. 
And, you know, we naively assume that a good employee in performance is worth keeping. Turns out, never. <laughs> That's probably one of the worst mistakes uh, as a first-time founder, I would say. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. What is a principle that you live by that has helped you in your entrepreneurial journey? Take risks and break things. Even if it seems that it's working, there's probably more things you can do. And if you're not failing fast enough, you're not moving fast. You're not moving fast enough. So not being scared to just constantly break what you've built. Something that took a lot of kind of courage from our team and not just, you know, the founder, but everybody is that in the early days, we thought we were going to serve developers as well alongside PMs and non-designers in product teams. And we had built a huge set of features to enable developers to export code, generate kind of like layout for web pages, pretty technically heavy and expensive things to build. And eventually we realized people couldn't care less. Our customers didn't want that. So we literally had to just throw months of work that costed a lot of money to build out of the window. And, you know, that's kind of like, if it's not working, throw it out of the window. It, you will just carry dead weight with you that's not driving value to customers. And it's kind of like the same principle we still apply today. If a feature is not used, even though we've spent a ton of love and work on it, kill it and then build something else that people actually want to use. Makes a lot of sense. You mentioned you, you have uh, two co-founders who are technical as well. And this is the hardest also part of uh, building a company is selecting your co-founders. And I had a chat recently with um, a guest who has a unicorn company and he mentioned that the most important aspect is the complementary skills of co-founders. Today, as three technical co-founders, how were you able to divide and conquer who should do what? And what advice do you have for listeners who are selecting their co-founders? That's a great question. And I've heard so many horror stories when I speak with other founders where it's, it's, this is the reason why the company would fail is literally just the co-founder dynamic, which is sad. But I love those three guys. We are four in total and I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing every day without them, quite frankly. So one of them is the non-technical, what is pretty obvious, how complimentary he is to everybody else, right? He's running operation, finance. And then the three of us that are technical, the reason why we felt that you could be a good match is that we each have very different area of specialization. Mine was machine learning and AI. My co-founder, who is a CTO, has always been like customer-facing product, SaaS. And then the last one is infrastructure, security, data. And that means that we never step on each other's toe when it comes to kind of like technical ownership. And it's been working amazingly well so far. Amazing. I mean, that's good to hear. In terms of, let's say you want to split the equity and you're agreeing with your co-founders, what would be something fair or a framework that someone listening to can use in terms of equity splitting when you have four co-founders in that case? I will just follow the YC advice, which is also what we did, is that even though I, I had started the early research, AI research myself, we did 25% each, like exact same split. And the reason is that we shared the same opinion than YC on this is that you're going to work on this for a long time, five years, 10 years, who knows? And so the fact that someone has worked a few more months than the other doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. And what happened when one founder have more than the other is that over time, it just created this really like pressure that, oh, but this person have more than me. Maybe I should just chill a bit more than them. And you just create this weird dynamic where people don't feel equal in this journey. So yeah, 25%, well, at least, you know, share the same 
amongst each founders. And in our case, it was 25% each. Dilution is extensive every founding round, but that's the way it is. We are there for the long run, um, uh, hopefully all together at the end. I love this advice. Thank you for sharing it, Tony. In terms of your journey, who has been the most inspirational in your journey? Well, we look up to a lot of people. Like we are first-time founders and we are learning the hard way. And so if we can have the chance to just learn from other people that have done it before us, it's amazing. So people that we look up to and that are kind of like mentoring us is a lot of different veteran founders that we just have regular catch-up with or our own investors. Some of them have been you know, serial entrepreneurs and can tell us what obvious mistake we should avoid making and that kind of stuff. Nothing exotic as an answer to this specific question. One last question. What's next for Wizard and Tony? Growth is phenomenal this year. We've been growing really fast, really, you know, in a really like also like productive way. And so the next step for us is really like to expand our footprint, especially in the US. The US is our fastest growing market. But we are a team of Europeans and we have no one there apart from one amazing customer support taking care of the full market. So I guess the next big step for us is kind of like to step up the game and then be more active and present in the US. Should we expect any new interesting features? I think you've released recently Auto Designer, which is an amazing feature. But uh, is there anything that we should expect on the AI spectrum? On the product front, Absolutely. Our team is hard work doing R&D and uh, development as we speak. And there's a ton more AI features coming to the product within the next six to nine months. Tony, where can people reach you? LinkedIn or Twitter. You can find me uh, pretty easily if you look up the uh, long family name that will be in the show notes. <laughs> great, great. And if anyone wants to check the website, uh, wizard.io, I believe, uh, with a U. And uh, you could as well, I'll put the links in the show notes uh, Thank you, Tony. It was a pleasure having you and sharing your story. We Thanks wish you the ton, best Hattie. of luck. Good luck to you too as well. Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers. <laughs>